0: Grab your Bibles and turn to first John chapter five it's near the end of the, the near the end of the uh, of the um, uh, Bible there you'll have first um, John second John third John Jude, and then revelation so just find that in your Bible if you're here and you don't have a Bible there's a Bible in the seat right in front of you and um, uh, you can if you don't have that Bible, you can take that one home it's our gift to you and we're going to be on page five ninety three now I'm going to ask you all to stand. in in honor of the reading of God's Word. And if you have a first through fifth grade child in the room with you right now, gather them around you. We're going to pray for them as they go to their uh, classes. We're going to pray for us as we hear the Word of God. And then we're going to uh, uh, go in and hear the message that the Lord has for us this morning. So are you ready to hear the Word of God? Are you ready for some good news? Some of you. Are you ready for some good news? The rest of you, praise God. Praise God. So let's pray for our kids. Let's pray for ourselves and then we'll get right into it. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to provide fresh bread, fresh, fresh water, Lord God, of the word of God for our children. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not... Miss the opportunity that 's given to us today to do that, Lord. we pray that that we would do it with intentionality, that we would do it with faithfulness, that we would do it um, with with courage and truthfulness lord God God, and that, that you would just divinely equip those who are who are assigned to teach this morning with your holy spirit to do it faithfully and in a way that honors you and brings honor to your name and lord we ask you boldly for good fruit to come out of what's going to happen back there today lord that, that many boys and girls lives will be ch- changed transformed touched by hearing the word of god lord jesus and lord we are not too old to pray that prayer for ourselves lord god Holy Spirit, please enable us to hear. Enable us to for the Word of God not to just be a lecture or philosophy or pay, or printed pages, Lord God. But let the Word of God be to us what Hebrews tells it tells us that it is a, a sharp, two edged sword that will have a dramatic impact as it slices right through us, Lord God. So we pray that Father, will you help the preacher this morning, God. Will you help him to, to uh, be bigger than the sum of his parts, Lord God, to to hear your voice clearly and communicate accurately what your word says this morning. And God, I cannot do this without you. And so I ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, boys and girls, you're dismissed. You can go back there to Jason. He's waiting for you. The rest of you, uh, 1 John chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 19 this morning. They're near the end of the chapter. And this is what we read in 1 John 5, 19. It says, we know that we are from God. Anybody grateful for that? Yes, sir. We know that we're from God. We don't guess. We don't hope. We don't figure. We know that we are from God. We know that we're from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thus says God's word. You may be seated. So here we are. Mission of of the church. We've been kind of Kicking this question around and and considering it unpacking it for the past three weeks We're going to continue that this week. And so we come to this passage in first John chapter 5 And and this passage is kind of a summation It's it, john is summing up the content of this of his first of three letters. He wrote In the Bible. Now we know that he also wrote the Gospel of John, which is the life story of Jesus, and he wrote the book of Revelation, which talks about um, the the culmination of God's kingdom. Um, But the main purpose of 1 John, the main purpose, is to help people know whether they are or are not truly biblically in Christ. And and so that's what John is trying to help us with. He's trying to point out some things. In fact, because of this goal, John uses the word know, K-N-O-W. He uses the word know 28 times in this little bitty book, 28 times. Now, usually you find it in phrases like we know or that we may know or you know. It's a book that seeks to give the readers who are reading it, either a constant assurance of where they stand in Christ, or the clarity to see that they are not in Christ at all. Some examples of the tests he lays out are found in passages like 1 John 2.29, where it says, if you know that he is righteous. Now, how many of you know that Jesus is righteous? That he is unfailingly Completely, spotlessly righteous. It says, if we know that he is righteous, then you may be sure. Like that? You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What is John's point? His point is that people who are engaged in habitual, unrepentant sin have not been born of Christ. That's what he's saying. Another example would be First John three fourteen. He says, we know. Everybody say, we know. we know. We know that we have passed out of death into life. And let me just pause right there. Some of you are waiting for someone to stick you in a box and put you six feet under the ground to enter into life. Guess what? The Bible says it's already happened. Amen. You've already entered into eternal life if you are in Christ. And he says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's a little test there. Whoever does not love, John says, abides in death. What's he saying? He's indicating that anyone who doesn't genuinely love their brothers and sisters in the body of Christ does not yet have a share in Christ's salvation. So he begins our passage today by assuring the churches that he's writing to, and there's a collection of churches in modern day Turkey, he, 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 he assures them, uh, that, that he says that if you've acknowledged Christ, if you've acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ and that He's come in the flesh, if you love the family of God, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you're becoming increasingly free from the clutches of indwelling and besetting sin, etc., then you know that you are from God. We know, He says, that we're from God. What a great assurance, right? How comfortable... Let's get real. Are you guys mind a little real talk this morning? How comfortable are you this morning in asserting the fact that you are from God? How can let's be honest. Do you understand this morning who you are and where you're from because of what Christ has done? See, Christians often struggle to view themselves or define themselves the way the Bible does self-condemnation resulting from not understanding the deep, rich truths of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in us and for us makes us identify only as hopeless sinners. I'm a mess, Lord. Look at this. I just, I can't get it right. I'm, I'm barely allowed at God's table. Every time I show up, I'm just polluting the kingdom of God. Anybody ever felt that way? Honestly, have you ever felt that way? The problem can also be maybe a sense of false humility because we think that it would be proud or arrogant to speak of ourselves the way God does in scriptures. But can I tell you something? It is never arrogance to agree with God. Let me say, try this crowd. It's never arrogance to agree with God. Y'all did so much better than them. I, I don't want to give them a complex, but y'all are my favorite side, so... Hey, you had your chance. (laughs) It's never arrogant to agree with God. So if you're in Christ, listen to me. This is probably the most important thing you're going to hear all day. If you're in Christ, what does the Bible say about you? What does it say about you? If you're in Christ, first of all, it says over and over again that you have been made righteous. It does not say you're being made righteous or you will be made righteous. It says you have been made righteous stated in the past tense indicating completion. You. Yes, you. Have been, past tense, made righteous because of Jesus. Now don't start thinking it's because of you because it ain't. It's because of Jesus. And so much so have you been made righteous. So much so that in Christ, the Bible constantly identifies you. This is going to blow some of you. As my friend Adam Finger says, this is going to bake your noodle, okay? (laughs) Some of you don't realize that because you have been made righteous, the Bible identifies every single one of you who are in Christ as a saint. And there's no investigation by the Vatican necessary. They don't have to the Pope Francis does not have to stick his stamp of approval on it because Jesus has already said you're a saint. So subsequently, you're made righteous, you are a saint. The New Testament says that we can successfully pursue and increasingly grow in real, practical day-to-day holiness. That's good news right there. Now, let's be honest. Let's go back to some real talk. Is that how you have seen yourself this week, righteous, a saint, growing in holiness? Did you roll out of bed thankful to the point of spontaneous worship that you have been declared righteous by the broken body, the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus? When you got up and looked at yourself in the mirror, did you realize, did you celebrate the fact that you were looking into the eyes of a saint? Did you marvel? as you considered how you are actually becoming more and more like Jesus, more holy, more set apart for him with each passing day, did you celebrate the fact that you are from God? Well, if you didn't, if you didn't, can I suggest that perhaps one of three things went wrong? First of all, perhaps you couldn't come to these conclusions because you are not truly a believer in Christ. Therefore, the Spirit of God who cannot lie couldn't give you any insurance of something that's not true. If this is the case with you this morning, if you know then you're knower that you are not a follower of Jesus, no matter what you might have done religiously at some point in your life, if you know that, or if you're just desperately unsure, fix it today. Become a follower of Jesus. I don't know how, Mark. I'll help you. Pastor David will help you. Any of these people who love Jesus will help you just, let's talk about it today, let's finish out, let's do some business with God. Be declared righteous today. Or, secondly, I suspect this is true of most of us. You've truly believed in Christ, but perhaps you've listened to the voice of your own imperfections Maybe you've listened to the voice of the devil instead of embracing the reality of who God has made you in Christ. The Bible says we walk by and not by. But see, when it comes to this matter, I look at myself and I go, man, what a rotten scoundrel he can be sometimes. I cannot be righteous. So that voice of my own imperfection tells me, oh, yeah, nah, you're not from God but that's it doesn't really matter because there's a book here that says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God i'd rather believe this than myself if this is you if you have these voices and 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 constantly drawing you to embrace away from embracing the reality of who God's made you in Christ. Repent today. Repent. Yes, it's sin. It's sin. It's not only not arrogance to agree with God, it's sin to disagree with Him. No, we don't like that. This is a democratic society. We all want to vote. You don't get a vote. Jesus is right. Right. Jesus is right, and therefore it's a sin to disagree with him. Repent of your unbelief and boldly agree with God that in Jesus, you're already a righteous saint, one who's being transformed by faith into the very image of the Son of God. Or maybe, lastly, you don't really know who you are because you're too distracted by the things of this life to truly enjoy life in Jesus. That's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. You know why? Because life in Jesus is the only thing eternal about the, the only eternal thing about you. That's it. That's all you got. The Bible says that treasured things, things that we value and treasure, like our wealth, our status, even our spiritual giftings, and even our marriages, all of those things will expire at the end of our earthly lives. Did you know that? Every single one of them. They're all dust in the wind. But while all these things are great, no one's denying that. While all these things are great and should be considered as wonderful blessings from the hand of God, we will not take any of them with us when we leave. Only our identity as the ones redeemed by Jesus will last. Eternal saints, robed in righteousness that is not our own, and forever worshiping the Lord. So let it be established in our hearts that if we're in Christ, we can say confidently with the Apostle John that we are, know we are from God. Everybody say, I am from God. Now rib your neighbor and say, hey, guess what? I'm from God. Go ahead. Tell them they need to know. But what exactly does it mean to say that we're from God? Uh, uh, The British commentator Alexander McLaren said that this phrase, we are from God, indicated two things. First, to say that we're from God indicates that we are derived from God. And that's to say that we have our origination in God. And that is is to say that no one is a believer in Jesus Christ because they simply chose to be. No one is. See, the Bible says that no one can even come to Christ unless the Father draws you to Him. That's what the Bible says. It also says that those of us who have been born into His kingdom have been born, A, not of blood, not by the will of the flesh, or not by the will of man, but by the will of God. That's how we come into the kingdom. This means, I'm going to shock some of you, some of you are going, to, are going to think that this is heresy, but I'm telling you it's true. That means that not a single solitary soul in this room or on this planet has ever found Jesus. Amen. Come on. Tell the truth to the devil. i got to tell you this. Man, where would we be without Paul Brooks? I'm telling you. I guarantee you, it wouldn't be near as fun to preach here. So, With, you know, Paul, I forgot where I was, man. Come on now. Thank you, man. Thank you. So no one ever found Jesus, ever. The truth of the matter is, I don't want to shock you, but you weren't looking for him. You were having fun doing your own thing. If, if you were honestly to assess how you came to him, I would almost guarantee you that you'll find that it usually seems, as we reflect on those days, it, it seems mysterious and almost unnatural that we should find ourselves alive in God. How did this happen? Remember who you were? And now who you are? How on earth did that happen? See, personally, I had no inclination or desire to live for Jesus at all. But thank God, thank God, on a September night in 1987, that night, he captured my rebellious heart. He stormed the gates and conquered me. And I had no say in the matter whatsoever. Spurgeon said this. He said, I must confess that I would have never been saved if I could have helped it. (laughs) We originate or we are derived from God. Secondly, McLaren says that to be from God means that we are continually and daily dependent on God. Just like a stream has to have a constant flow of water, new water, to remain a stream and not just a dry bed, so we too need a fresh portion of heaven's grace every single day or we will dry up. McLaren postulated that without an unbroken connection to God, you can no more have the life of the Spirit residing in you than a sunbeam could continue to shine if the sun ceased to burn. We need daily supply. We're sustained by and completely dependent on God. We draw our life from Him. But I'd like to add a third thing for us to consider. We're not only derived from and dependent on God, but we are from God. And what that means is it implies that we are also commissioned by God. To be sent from God. This means that we have been sent from Him in order to fulfill the mission of God to fulfill it, to do what God has has established through His will that we should do. This is why we spent three weeks pondering what exactly this mission is. So why are these interpretations of John's phrase, from God, important? Why have we spent so much time on them this morning? It's because of this. Because John doesn't finish there. There's a contrast with which John follows the assurance that we're from God. Do you remember what it was? Let's take a look at it one more time in context. John says this, we know that we are from God. We've all agreed with that this morning. But then he says this, and we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So on this side, you have a ransomed, redeemed people who are from God. And on this side, you have an entire planet that is under the cruel, suffocating, subjugation of the devil. So the Bible says, it's pretty wide contrast, isn't it? As believers, our lives are derived from dependent on God, but that's only half the story. Now, I want to illustrate the deeper meaning of what John is exactly saying in this passage. So I want to look at a fascinating story that's found in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. It kind of overlaps there. It's page 178 in your Bible. Um, I'm going to just kind of briefly describe it. We're going to take a look at one little verse in there, but go ahead and open it up if you want to see that and and, um, try to find, you know, kind of the story we're talking about. So here's the situation in this story. Samaria, which is Israel's capital, you'll remember that the kingdom was split and the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is was Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel uh, and, and, and Israel's capital was Samaria. And so this capital city of Israel has been besieged by the nation of Syria and it would lasted for quite some time. It, it, it resulted in severe famine and they had res- and they resorted even to cannibalism in this story. The people of the city of Samaria are frightened, they're discouraged, they're despairing for their lives. But God spoke through the prophet Elisha that within 24 hours, within 24 short hours, that he was going to bring about a miraculous deliverance and and he was going to completely turn their situation around. Well, sure enough, sometimes, sometime the very next day, God sends the sound of a great military force approaching into the enemy's camp. And the Syrians hear this sound and they think that Israel has hired a couple of foreign armies to come to their rescue. Terrified, they flee in a panic and they leave their tents and their clothes and their silver and their gold and their livestock and most importantly their food just lying in this abandoned camp. But no one in the city knows what has happened. Nobody does. Okay? Well, meanwhile, just outside the city of Samaria, there's sitting four miserable, pitiful, hungry lepers. People who, because of their physical condition, are excluded from their countrymen. And one of them finally has enough, and he says, Why are we just sitting here until we die? If we go into the city, the famine's there and we'll die along with everyone else. Plus, we're not welcome there. But if we go to the enemy's camp, they'll either feed us or they'll kill us. Either feed us or kill us and, well, I guess we'd be no worse off than where we're at right now. But I'll tell you one thing, we can't just sit around on our blessed assurance all day. We got to get moving. So they get up And they go, and sure enough, they find that all of the invaders of their land have made like a banana and split. They have gone. They're they're out of there. They can't believe. These four lepers cannot believe what they see. There's food everywhere. There's beautiful garments. There's split-level ranch-style tents just there for the taking. There's gold. There's silver. And what do you think they did? Well, guess what? They did exactly what you and I would have done. They pig out, first of all, and then they haul off all the gold and silver they could carry and stash it away for later. But if you look at verse or chapter 7, verse 9, look, that, look at that, you'll see that the, these four lepers eventually come to their senses. And this is what they say. They say, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. What's another word for good news? This is a day of gospel. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they go to the gates of the city and they proclaim this gospel, this good news. And soon the whole city pours out to enjoy the incredible deliverance that God has brought about. Now, in this analogy... You are the lepers. What? You're the lepers. You were once sitting around, unable to save yourself, unable to deliver, feed, or heal yourself because of your inherent uh, condition. You were not in any state to do anything for yourself. And that's where you were. When Jesus found you. Just a leper. But a day came when God's spirit prompted you. When he founded you in the place of death. When you were in the place of depravity. The place of degradation. And He, he prompted you to conclude that it was better to rush into the camp of God. The one that you assumed was your enemy. And with the spirit's help we concluded that it would be better to die by God's hand than to stay in the place where we were. This is how the prodigal son in Luke 15 went home, isn't it? He was there eating pig slop, blown all of his money, had no ability to help himself. And the Bible says he came to himself and he said, I am going to go back crawling home and beg my dad, beg him just to let me be one of his slaves so that I'll have some chance of survival. But do you remember how shocked you were when you arrived at the camp of God, when you arrived at the house of God and you got there and you found out that it wasn't judgment or wrath that was waiting for you? Do you remember how your eyes popped out of your head when you realized that there was a table spread? A table had been spread and... Clean garments were waiting for you in a comfortable place to live out of the elements. That there was riches and provision that could be stored up for the rest of your life. The riches were His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His healing, His deliverance, His love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. it was all just laying there waiting for you to take it. But most of all, more than any of that stuff, the reward of coming into his camp or coming back to his house was that you would now have unbroken fellowship with your king, with your savior, with your God and had come to the amazing discovery that most of all, he wanted to be your father. Mm. But we can't forget that we're not the only ones in this story. See, there's a whole city. There's a whole city lying just beyond the camp of our blessings. Just beyond it. John says that it's the whole world. That city is the whole world, and it lies in the power of the evil one. See, sometimes we're just like those lepers, and we just want to revel in our blessings, throwing coins in the air like Scrooge McDuck. The bounty that we think that we've stumbled upon. We think we've got this big, great deal. We've stumbled on this deal. And now we're just going to revel in it. But I pray that we would realize that there is plenty enough in the camp of God for the whole world. Every single one of us can be satisfied with no lack because of what God has provided for us through Jesus. Every one of us. I pray that we're found in our services and prayer meetings, youth groups and potlucks, offerings and small groups, convicted and saying like those lepers, we are not doing right. This is a day of gospel. It's a day of good news. And if we're silent and wait until the new creation, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, And let us go and tell the whole world that the king loves them and gave himself for them. Let's go. Consider deeply what it means that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It means that darkness reigns in the domains. Of this world that are not submitted to the lordship of Christ. It means that in the realms of politics. The media, technology, education, religion, etc. Not always, but often the church has made poor responses to this truth. That the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. For example, the church is often huddled defensively. Just kind of gotten together, scared to death of the world. We're so afraid that the world is going to corrupt us that we rush into our churches as if they were holy hideouts and we lock the doors and pray for the rapture to happen so we can just get out of here. The world can go to hell as long as we're safe and unscathed. It's not good. What we're doing is not right. Do you imagine Christ's church? Listen to me, if you've been a holy huddler... Do you imagine Christ's church to be so fragile to justify this level of fear and timidity? Do you think we're that fragile? Do you think that the bride of Christ is so prone to adultery that we have to lock ourselves away? Last time I checked, which was yesterday, I believe that the scriptures say this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Deep and wide, the knowledge of the the Lord. I am not fragile. I am not in danger because I am anchored in Jesus. God has not called us to hide out, but to permeate the darkness with the fragrance of His glory by our faithful, God-exalting presence in it. Secondly, the church has has often ranted offensively. What does that mean? Well, it means we've preached and published and posted on social media how naughty this world is. How stupid people with opposing political views are. And how corrupt the media is. Too often we've been great at cursing darkness. And we've been horrible at lighting candles. It's like someone who wants to become a doctor. So they can have a big house. Fancy car. But they don't want to be exposed to sick people. (laughs) Listen to me. Listen to me. Church. The doctor exists for sick people. The reason he is a doctor is to be around sick people. They are the reason that he gets the benefits of his job. But haven't we sometimes reveled in all the benefits of the kingdom while complaining about all the spiritually sick people that are, that are the reason we exist? Come on now. That world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, that's the point. That's the point. Exactly the point. And who's going to help them? Who's going to tell them that? Jesus said that we are to be the light of this world. Why? Why did he say that? Because guess what? It's a dark place. When I light a candle in my well-lit office or in my home, all it does is provide more light in a place that already has plenty. But if I light light a, a, a candle in total darkness... There may still be plenty of darkness, but the light will always overcome. Anyone can see the light, though surrounded by darkness, and anyone can make their way toward the light. But if there's no light at all in the darkness, only chaos will result. Like the city of Samaria so long ago, this world has no idea, no idea that a great Deliverance has been accomplished by God through Christ. If we don't tell Him, who will? Jesus said, But you, but you, Everybody say me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And all believers must approach this truth in two ways, globally and locally. So what is our responsibility as the church globally? According to the Joshua Project, which is a missions research organization, listen to this, don't, don't tune me out right now, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. According to the Joshua Project, a full 42%, 42% of this world is classified as unreached. That means that they live in people groups where less than 7% of the population has even been nominally reached with the message of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. 3.2 billion people worldwide have never or only minimally heard the story of Jesus. 3.2 billion Did you know that 81% of Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus have no contact with one single Christ follower? Not one. There's no one in their circle that could share this news with them. Well, Mark, come on. Now, that might be sad, but what could I possibly do about it? What should you do about it? A lot, actually. There's a whole lot. I'm not guilt-tripping, it's just true. My prayer for our church throughout its history, however long God gives us, is that some of you would leave your homes, leave your jobs, and that you would just sacrifice the American dream and go to the forgotten people of China and India and the Muslim world, and that you would absolutely trust God to provide for you to do so. I pray that we as a church would stop infecting our children with consumerism and selfishness and teaching them that a good job and a secure future is to be their most prized possession. That we would demonstrate ourselves for them what it is to treasure Jesus Christ most of all and encourage them to follow Him, follow their King into the darkest corners of this world to bring the light. Even if it meant for them to die a martyr's death. And we we turn our kids over to the military. It's a noble thing to do. I'm not complaining. I'm not anti-military. But but the thought of our children going to a Muslim land and dying for Christ causes us to go into a full-scale panic. Why? Why? Which is more glorious? Which is more glorious? Maybe... Something we can do is that instead of making a pilgrimage to Florida to pay homage to a cartoon mouse, we could gather our families up and go on mission trips with our children and let them see what's happening on the other side of the world. Probably cheaper. <laughs> Since we're talking about money, that we would invest our wealth to send the message out instead of buying. Just one more convenience to lull ourselves to spiritual sleep and deafen our ears to the cries of the perishing. And let me tell you something. If I ask the question, how many of you in this room are rich? None, if in, if maybe a few, but most likely none of you would raise your hand. But let me tell you something about these statistics, about what we just read, about the 42% and the 3.2 billion, that if you live in this country, if you live in America... You're among the world's wealthiest people, even if you're among the poorest of Americans. We have something we can do. But more than all of that, more than all of that, that we as a church would just be found praying. That we would go to the trouble to stop thinking about all the frivolity of this world. Can I just be real honest with you? I don't give a rip what the Kardashians are doing. I couldn't care less. I don't care too much about what the Dallas Cowboys are doing. I, I don't care about those things because there's there's people that are perishing. I'm not tired about being so spiritually minded that you don't care about anything and you, that's your only interest. I'm just saying, sometimes we, we idolize the dumbest things. The last verse we read today in our original text was, John said, little children, keep yourself from idols. It is the idols that keep me from engaging the mission of God. That's my biggest that's the biggest flaw the reason I'm not reaching more people is because I'm too busy doing other stuff it's going to just slip through my fingers in eternity that we would pray that we would take the time to adopt people groups and nations to daily bring before God do we still believe that prayers to our father are sufficient to topple evil and advance his kingdom do we believe that? I don't know how we can call ourselves Christians if we don't. Now listen, I acknowledge that not all of you will or can or even should go permanently to other regions of the world, although you have to, you have to concede that all of us can and should give generously, pray fervently, and, and even consider taking short-term mission trips. But if you stay here, you still have a responsibility locally. Every one of us. No one's off the hook. Next week, I'm going to wrap up the series by hopefully giving you some step-by-step strategies from Jesus, from the very lips of Jesus, on how to connect with your friends and neighbors, with Christ, how to connect with them with Christ as the central intentional focus. Anybody interested in that? Amen. But th- this is the week. Next week is the week that we'll have the biggest effect that will have the biggest effect on most of us. It's where we'll consider things like witnessing and cultural engagement, even church planning and things like that. But before we do that, I want to leave you with one more scripture. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And ask yourself as as we read this in the presence of the church and, and God, if this has any implications for your life personally. Look with me at verse 14. This is what we read, verse 14. It's page 551 in the, in the Bibles and the chairs. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they going to call on Jesus if they don't even know who Jesus is? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that doesn't mean what I do on Sundays from 10 to 1130. It means what you do Monday through Friday. Monday through Saturday. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are they to hear unless they're sent? How are they to hear unless they're sent? Ladies and gentlemen, you are from God. You are from God. You have been sent. You have been commissioned. You are from God. How will they hear? How will they go unless they're sent? Well, guess what? Stop waiting. You've been sent. Bow your heads with me. Father, I... uh, Lord, this is one of those messages so difficult to preach because I like I encouraged this earlier I'm so aware of my faults, my failures, my shortcomings my missed opportunities God And God it breaks me to think of that it breaks me to think about the, the people that in my years have not heard your glorious name, your wonderful story your incredible gospel because I have not had the courage to proclaim you boldly or worse yet, God, the people that haven't heard because I have con- been consumed with other things that are passing, that are temporal. Lord, I just want to ask, and I invite any of you to ask as well, but Lord, I just want to ask for your forgiveness this morning. I want to ask, Lord God, that you would reorient my life around the bold and constant proclamation of your good news. What I have been doing is not good. This is a day of good news. And if I wait, if I wait till the morning sun of the new Jerusalem, then all I can expect is punishment. But God, you've sent me. I am from God. You have sent me now to go and proclaim your gospel in my world. So, Lord, will you just equip me, enable me, convict me so that I might do that, Lord God? Help me, Father, because I won't do anything. I won't change without your help. Help me, Lord. Help us all, God, to be what you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.